Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 57 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, what matters is, of course, the upcoming US Open, or more importantly for our discussion, the Chambers Bay course upon which that tournament will be played. Joining us in just a moment will be Jay Blasey, a former staffer at Robert Trent Jones, company who spent countless hours on the ground at Chambers Bay as project architect for next week's host site. We'll bring Jay into the discussion in just a moment. But first, to my co-host, as always, from the US, popular blogger, Columnist, architect, critic, author, and general golf somebody, Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, talking course architecture today, always good to get back to the roots and looking forward to this one. Yes, I am too. Jay is a very talented architect and I think was a big part of this. So, uh, uh, And this is a mystery venue, so I'm, I'm anxious to learn more about it. It's the most anticipated US Open for me, I think, that I can remember for a long time, just because of the course. So we'll get to all of that. In just a minute, from here in Australia, former tour player, now course architect, commentator, columnist, occasional caddy, Mike Clayton. Clayton's looking forward to chatting about a golf course that, from the pictures, looks really interesting and fun. Yeah, it looks a lot different than the normal, so we're all looking forward to watching it next week, no doubt. From the, from the trauma of Merion a couple of years ago <laughs> to what looks something more like what we might like to see. To today's guest, Jay Blasey. As I mentioned in the intro, Jay was project architect with Robert Trent Jones during the design and construction of Chambers Bay. Knows the golf course at least as well as anyone on the planet, apart from anything else. Got married on the course. Jay, that is commitment to the project. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity to join you. No, we are looking forward to getting your thoughts. Let's, Jay, let's start right at the beginning. We've sort of touched on it. Chambers Bay, it's very different. It's a mystery venue. Lots and lots of talk about it. Reading through some of the previews and a bit of stuff on your own site, um, this has almost been purpose-built for US Open, isn't it? You talk about uh, on your website or in a couple of stories I've read, sort of having in mind and measuring out marquees and things that will be required for a US Open during the design process. I don't know that any US Open course has ever had that sort of attention to detail during construction. Well, I think we were certainly the, uh, the beneficiaries of, of uh, a great deal of history uh, prior, prior to the construction of the golf course. Uh, Pierce County, who uh, owns the golf course and was the developer, uh, this was a former sand and gravel mine and therefore when they reclaimed the site, they, they contemplated all the different things to do with it. They knew that public parks and trails would be part of it. But when they decided to include a golf course, they, they thought to themselves, perhaps it didn't have to be just a, another municipal golf course, but it could be one uh, that could bring people to the area. And they thought the site was special enough. That was part of the whole RFP process was uh, to find out from the various architects if they felt like there was that opportunity uh, to, to do something like Bethpage had done. That, that cert, they had uh, read the book about Bethpage and, and uh, kind of had that in their mind. And, and so, yes, uh, very much from the start, there were discussions about creating a course that had the uh, potential to bring people from a long ways away and, and certainly host uh, major championships. Because, mm, of course, one of the interesting things about major championship golf, we all um, sort of don't like the notion that you know certain golf courses are off the rotation but for many courses it's a matter of infrastructure around an event like the US Open isn't it Shaq it's there's so much in the way of hospitality and parking and all the logistics involved with them we saw it at Marion there are some venues just not up to it anymore there's really going to be an issue going forward you would think uh, yo, it's ruled out many great courses already for sure and uh, but I, I also think one of the 
supposed luxuries of the USGA's new television deal is they have more money. Therefore, and I think you see this in the lineup post, uh, really, Chambers Bay, Aaron Hills, they are actually going to have more boutique U.S. Opens. So uh, I, I don't know if these are one-off, but I do have the sense that you really, when you look at the list, other than Torrey Pines, everything coming up is is maybe not a boutique open on the level of Marion, but they are probably going to be smaller scale than this one or the one at, at Aaron, Bay, uh, Aaron Hills or Torrey Pines. Yeah, interesting stuff. Jay, back to the course itself, of course. <clears throat> Those of us in golf wouldn't necessarily expect that a project that essentially was a local government project, you mentioned Pierce County there, and there was one particular individual whose name now escapes me who drove this from all of my readings from the beginning. This is not the golf course you would expect to come from a local government getting involved in golf courses, is it? No, and the gentleman you refer to is John Ladenberg. John was the Pierce County executive during the time, and, and he really was kind of the visionary and, and the man who – uh, who made it happen? And um, you're right; it, it's not a it's not a typical thing. But but John from the start was adamant once he had done his homework that you know this is a hundred year project and we needed to be thinking about uh, you know generations and generations to come and and what this project could mean to those folks. Uh, you know the county already had a couple of other golf courses that were serving the needs of the residents fairly well. So the homework was done and, and I think it's probably been written and is fairly accurate to say that this this is not the right solution for all local municipalities, but uh, when this set of circumstances came about and this particular site came about, uh, it seemed like this, wa- this was a, a great track to go down. The site would be the key in that, I would think, Jay, because you couldn't just pick any site necessarily in Pierce County and say, we can build a US Open course here. Not that it was that simple the way it unfolded, but the site, I imagine, was crucial to that notion of building something really special in golf terms. Well, you touched on the fact that uh, infrastructure is important. You know, when we first had discussions about whether or not you could host a a major championship, and in particular the U.S. Open, uh, you know, if you think about there might be a dozen uh, boxes to check off. We felt like outside of the 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 design of the course of its course itself that you crossed a lot of those off. You know, the U.S. Open had never been in the Pacific Northwest before. The site was accessible by boat, by train, and by car. Uh, It was in a major metropolitan area close to Seattle, Tacoma, and even uh, close enough to Portland. The sandy soils, you know, we mentioned it was a sand and gravel mine. Sandy soils, it's right on Puget Sound, so you've got good views. West Coast is always good for East Coast TV viewership, things like that. So we felt like all the things other than the golf design, uh, you know, were, were gave us the opportunity. And then, as uh, Mike Davis put it after his first site visit, you know, just don't screw up the course. <laughs> no, no, no pressure, of course. Uh, in that sense, of course, the golf course is probably the most important last piece of that puzzle, though, isn't it? Uh, and that's the one that gets it over the line. You can tick all those other boxes, but if the golf course is no good, then the rest of it falls over, doesn't it? So that's kind of the uh, the important thing uh, in the end. Let's talk a bit about the golf course, Jay. Mike Davis, you mentioned there, made some somewhat controversial comments a month or two ago about players will need to come play the course multiple times. You won't just turn up on Tuesday and win this US Open couple of things that went under the radar there. He mentioned one that intrigued me particularly, this notion of there might be some uneven lies on tees. Is that true? Are there, are there places on the tees at Chambers Bay where you could have uneven lies? Well, yes. Uh, the, uh, you know, the teeing grounds are somewhat unique. There are a number of other golf courses that have a similar uh, concept or, or, or whatnot. But the idea, the idea behind the tees 
was that we didn't want them to be artificial. If you think of a golf course, the tees are often the most artificial aspect. You'd never find a flat circle or a flat rectangle out in nature. So the idea was just try, try to have the the teeing grounds bleed into the landscape. And so they they were shaped or created as uh, we refer to them as big ribbons. And within those ribbons, you do have flat areas and then you've got some side slopes and then some little step downs uh, as you traverse the, the different elevations. So um, the USGA has at their disposal the opportunity to put the blocks wherever they want. They could choose all four days, all 18 holes to put the blocks in flat spots. There's flat spots on every tee. They could also choose to, uh, to put them on some of the uneven slopes. My guess is that while it's been written about and talked about, uh, I, I don't think it's going to become a, a focal point or a controversial aspect of the Open. I can't imagine Mike Davis is ever going to put the tee blocks on some sort of a slope. Clates, free-form tees. It's a really interesting idea. Have you ever done it? you seen it elsewhere? No, but I think it's a great idea to if you get the right side to build a golf course almost without tees, just kind of go off the greens and, you know, I love the idea of, you know, this, I mean, we've built a few tees that people complain about. They're not flat, but they're as close to flat as you can get. But it's just, a, I love the notion of kind of some sort of randomness about it. And, and I think it would be great to do, a, you know, if somehow you could do a golf course where you didn't have to build tees. You could just go onto a space and start the next hole and, well, well, Michael, it's funny that you bring that up. I mean, uh, 10 plus years ago, you know, I was a 25 year old. My goal for the golf course at Chambers Bay was that it would be played match play only and they wouldn't yeah. use tee blocks, you know. So the same exact thing is let's just let the winner of the last hole go choose where to start the next one and give them a big area to do so and they can go find wherever spot they want. Perfect. This, this, the- <laughs> This doesn't go well with you need four par threes, four par fives. Everything's got to be sort of all the things about golf that we complain about on this show, Jay, is that a lot of that creativity has been lost in golf in this pursuit of fairness, hasn't it? It has. You know, there, it's unfortunate that, like you say, sometimes it, it, it needs to be, you know, things need to be put into a box. But, uh, you know, the, the golf courses and the golf holes that are, are near and dear to so many people's hearts oftentimes spill outside the lines and uh and it'd be great if we could get back to more of that that's what makes them great didn't i'm pretty sure close wasn't it a couple of hundred years ago that the way the hole formed was you dug out a piece of sand a handful of sand to tee your ball up on the next tee uh which might have been only four feet well, away from the hole that's how the whole thing developed as far as a hole went was it not well originally the rule was you played within two club two clubbings of the hole which was, I mean, you know, the real estate developers started screwing that up by making you drive 300 yards to the next tee before you started again. But, well, I mean, so we should blame Tom Morris for inventing tees, really, which was his concept, I think, to start off. But the only thing he got wrong, Clades. Everything else, his contributions <laughs> to the game were all good, apart from perhaps that. Yeah, you had to nail him for that one. But. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly right. Speaking of, you know, carts having to go 300 yards to the next tee, the other thing that remarkably, Jay, you managed to get through in, when the developer is a, a sort of a government agency, a walking-only golf course. How difficult was that and how important has that been to the success of Chambers Bay? Well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought that up. In my opinion, that was the most important decision of the whole uh, project. And once again, that was John Ladenberg who had to make the tough calls. But, uh, you know, that was part of our uh, initial pitch. You know, we felt like there was an opportunity to do something special we felt that the, the way to really maximize the site and, and, and to yield the best possible scenario was to create 
a true Lynx golf course, not a watered-down, Americanized version of such. And therefore, you know, we, we talked about the idea of, of the fescue, and, and with that comes the fact that it doesn't handle the cart traffic and really needed to go walking only. So it was a, it was, uh, there was some back and forth. Uh, you know, John Ladenberg did his homework. He asked uh, Kemper Sports, who manages the golf course, to put together projections of you know, what the revenues might be with and without carts. Uh, we sat in a meeting and, and made the case explaining that there were as many as six green sites that would have been compromised by uh, putting cart paths in and things like that. And he listened to all sides, and it, it, ironically, it was the same day that he named the golf course. So he finished the meeting by saying, uh, we'll call it Chambers Bay and we'll walk it in 2007. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was sitting uh, next to Bruce Charlton, uh, who works with Robert Trent Jones, too, and I leaned over to him and I said, would it be inappropriate if I crawled across the table and hugged this guy right now? I mean, well, that, that, that was it. That was the key decision. As you're talking, I'm wondering whether we should vote John Ledenberg as in charge of all future golf course construction around the world. He sounds like quite the visionary. Shaq, you had something for Jay. Well, I guess I think probably people listening are, are going to wonder a, a little bit in hearing Jay and, and obviously his knowledge of the project, why we had him on. Maybe so you can take us back, Jay, to – this time period, what was your role with Robert Trent Jones uh, two? Excuse me, I've noticed the USGA has been correcting people on that. It's not junior. Um, and uh, you know, who were you? Why and why were you entrusted to sort of be the embedded person on site who would really shape the way this? Uh, and I don't mean uh, literally shape, and I don't think, but 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 mold the kind of the look because obviously this look is a very different style than what Robert Trent Jones had done before. And so can you just kind of set up for us how, what you were doing, why you were there, and how it came to be that you, you were the person who got to be on site so much? Sure. So I, I started with RTJ in 2001, uh, RTJ2, sorry, uh, in 2001. My first day was actually uh, the day before 9-11. And so I spent a couple years, you know, uh, working, you know, drafting plans and helping, uh, you know, other architects in the office. And so this was really kind of the first opportunity to, to be a creative voice. Uh, as you may or may not know, because it was a municipal project, they went through a very formal RFP process. I think they had 56 formal proposals from different uh, firms, and then they whittled that down to five. And during that whole RFP process and the initial interview process, it was very much an all-hands-on-deck. Uh, you know, the entire company was pulling together, you know, company history, and, and, you know, there were hundreds of pages that needed to be submitted and whatnot. And so for me, as a young guy in the office, I see a, a, a site with uh, on Puget Sound that's a, a sand mine, and, you know, this is about as good as it gets. And so I just, you know, kind of volunteered and, and started working on all the interview uh, presentations and plans and whatnot. And uh, luckily enough, they let me just kind of keep going. And so I was part of all of that initial stuff. And then it was very clear as soon as we got the job, that Pierce County uh, really needed kind of a, 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 a person to be accountable to them on a daily basis. I mean, for over a year, probably close to two years, I had a daily phone call with the uh, project manager, Tony Tipton, up there. So, you know, well, well, Bobby, you know, he's got 250 plus courses to his name. And if he visits, you know, 
a tenth of them every year and he goes and sees other potential jobs. You know, he's got a very, very full schedule. Uh, you know, Bruce is a world traveler. He had three or four other projects going on at the time. So it was very much a team effort. But I was the guy who, you know, kind of had the the passion for the site and and had the time available to uh, to devote, you know, a couple years basically solely to that project. Mm. You can't do a Chambers Bay from an office, can you? You must be on the ground daily, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, we uh, again, to Pierce County's credit, they really um, uh, laid out a, a reasonable schedule. They gave us a full year uh, to work on, on plans and come up and walk the site and refine the routing and whatnot. So a full year prior to construction to, to get to know the site. And then, uh, you know, you can build 12 months of the year up there. So we had ample time for construction even though it was a good project uh it was a big scale project and whatnot so they really did provide uh you know uh realistic windows for everything and that made a lot of the difference clay so have you ever had a job this sort of smooth you're working for a government agency that's reasonable that understands the game that's happy enough to have a walking only golf course gives you a reasonable time frame to it none of this happens in golf course design does it this sounds like a job that's been made up by somebody well bumbugle was like that I mean, Richard was in no hurry, and I mean, again, the the card thing was interesting because we're they're about to open Cape Wickham, which is an incredible course Mike DeVries has done on King Island. But the owner there thinks that the owner at Bamboogle, Richard Sadler, misses out on a bunch of green fees because he doesn't have carts. But you know, like Chambers Bay, it's all, all fescue course, fescue greens, fescue everything. And I kind of always disagreed. I thought it was a horrible decision to take carts to. Um, Kate Wickham. It's just a, but you know they're the kind of arguments you have. And in the case of Australia, Richard at Bamboogle was one guy who said no carts, and someone else across the water is saying, yeah, we have to have carts, and Richard's missing out on money because he's got no carts. So I'm sure they had the same discussion there. Mm. It was Bay about the money it cost them, but no one ever talks about the money golf carts cost in terms of the damage they do. And, and as Jay said, how much. You know, it's the most underrated part of design now is having to worry about where cart paths go. They're horrible. They scar the land. Oh, horrible. Yeah, you, know, you know, it's a nightmare trying to build a tight green site. And where are the carts going to go? I mean, it's just, you know, it's something that the great architects never had to think about. I was interested in that. As you said, John Lindenberg did got them to do a whole bunch of costings, <laughs> Jay. I'm interested to hear what came back from that while we're on this topic about what it actually costs to have a golf cart. Because it's not free. It's true that it does generate daily kind of revenue as people hire them but there are costs to having carts as well not just the carts themselves but the maintenance of paths and those sorts of things aren't there there are and i think you know it would be it would be very challenging to uh kind of break down the uh the financials of chambers bay there's so many different lenses in which you can you can look at it. So, the the lens that we were we always discussed was this is a hundred year project. Let's do what's right for Pierce County over the next hundred years. And so, uh, yeah, there's a spreadsheet that you can do that shows that carts will generate a lot of revenue, but it's awfully hard to predict, you know, what the impact is in terms of how the golf course is viewed by the public. I would contend that. Uh, if you look at a place like Bandon Dunes, that ultimately, uh, you know, this is hindsight now, 20 years later, but th- their revenues are higher because they don't have carts and because it does offer true links golf. And so, therefore, being able to, uh, you know, brand and market and, and bring people for that 
specific reason actually generates more re revenue than the carts would have and the byproduct of having a watered down Americanized version of Lynx. So there's lots of different ways to look at it, but I think it's safe to if the golf course was not fescue, we wouldn't be hosting a U.S. Open and it wouldn't be bringing, you know, a hundred plus million dollars to the local area. So. In some ways, Shaq, it's almost a bit of a sad indictment, though a positive move, isn't it, though, that a walking-only golf course has become a boutique experience now. <laughs> People, the walking can be a part of it, um, you know, as opposed to what you get most places these days, which is the golf cart experience. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's bleak. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's on so many levels, and, and, you know, nobody ever touches on the maintenance element, too, because it's so hard to quantify what cart damage does to turf, but... Uh, I, I've seen it on many golf courses where they they uh, don't have carts early on, and then they the grass is to deem mature, and they let them out, and 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 it may not be things that most people notice, but but the damage is done, and and it's uh, it's it's a shame. It's it's uh, and as I mean, the, and the cart path design thing is just uh, really one of the most problematic elements of all for architects, and I, I know people don't they they don't sympathize or get that but um so often and jay and clates can can attest you just you just can't believe how many compromises and things you have to do to work around paths and then also just uh, the cost now my gosh they were you know tory pines north that that phil mickelson redo the the cart path uh Reconstruction, which was in as viewed as by the municipality as an essential component to this project, the reason really to do this. I mean, the polar opposite of what went on at Chambers Bay. You're talking a million and a half dollars. I have no idea how they how that costs that. I really don't. Yeah. Well, what's, what does a concrete cart path cost? I think it's somewhere in between eight hundred thousand and one point two million, yeah. isn't it, to do eighteen holes of concrete continuous cart path from clubhouse back to clubhouse, apart from <clears> the <throat> scar that it leaves on the land and the, oh, of course, no, and the no, ugliness no. of it, but. You know, it's not free. You know. Yep. The the one we did at Hillsville, which is a five thousand meter course, was it was a million dollars. It was a cut oh. all the way around, and it, it got hidden pretty well. But it was yeah, they were a million bucks. Yeah. Wow. A lot of money. Anyway, let's move on. None of that to do with what we're going to see unfold next week. Jay, the golf course itself is extremely interesting. From this part of the world, we've only had the chance to read about, look pictures, and watch the flyovers on Jeff's site, but some amazing stuff. Let's start with the fact that the first and 18th holes can switch paths between par four and par five, both of those holes. Do you think we're likely to see that during the US Open? That would be such a, a radical move. We, we saw the tees being moved 100 yards at Olympic a couple of years ago. It didn't go down well with some of the players uh, late on Sunday afternoon. Do you think we're going to see Mike Davis use some of those wonderful free-form aspects of Chambers Bay that have been built into the course? Very much so. I think it's uh, I think it's been stated that uh, one and eighteen will alternate. Uh, uh, they'll play two days uh, with number one as a five uh, and eighteen as a four, and then two days with eighteen as a five and one as a four. So I think that's definitely going to happen. And and you just touched upon you know flexibility. Um, there was something we tried to design into the golf course, but Mike Davis and his team are going to have more flexibility uh, at Chambers Bay than any venue they've ever had by a wide margin. Uh, the uh, Every single hole has the potential to be moved up or back probably 100 to 120 yards uh, in terms of the teeing grounds. Many holes have different angles that they can put the tees on. 
and and some of the holes have drastically different elevations that they can put the tees on. So strictly from the setup of the tees, uh, they'll have uh, unbelievable flexibility. Clayton, I'm sure some of the players won't like that, but as a player and a national tournament, the US Open, an important tournament, a prestigious event and all those sorts of things, what do you expect as a reaction from the players as I said, at, at, at Olympic a couple of years ago, they moved the, the tee on the 16th. Was it Shaq, the par five, 16? They moved it up 100 yards on the Sunday, yeah. and we know it caught Jim Furyk out on the Sunday. What do you expect as a reaction from the players? And as a tournament golfer, um, would you welcome that sort of thing as a course where one day you play the first as a par four and the next day a par five? Well, I, think variety, I mean, I love what Gil and Jeff did at LA Country Club where they reintroduced Thomas's content of the course within a course. Where the two par threes can be played as short par fours, and that funky pin on the fifth, Jeff, and so, so I think the variety is an incredible part of golf. That was, you know, it was amazing. Thomas's concept of the course within a course never caught on because it was such a great idea. Talk us through it again, Clay. So you've talked about this before, and I've been intrigued by it before. But explain what what that. Well, 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 Jeff can probably talk to it better than I can because he was the one who did it with Gill at LA Country Club. The, Jeff, do you want to talk to that? Well, yeah, the, the philosophy comes from, from I believe, uh, Thomas never really explained it, but, but George Thomas and I think Alistair McKenzie to an extent, they, they viewed inland golf as, as not flexible and not different day-to-day -day and mundane, really. And so Thomas made this effort to inject all these different ways to set up the golf course. And Mike Davis has always been very drawn to it. I've shared a lot of it with him. He's, he's can't wait to do this, this stuff at L.A. Country Club, but it, it obviously offends people at times because it's somebody, both the architect and the setup person, sort of pulling the levers, and that that is always a fine line for people when it's not something natural. They they tend to reject it. Um, so that that is the concept, and it's going to be in full force at, at Chambers for the I'd say more than ever in the U.S. Open with any venue. Uh, and people still moan about the Torrey Pines team moving up. I had a conversation the other day about Jim Farrick's plight. It was the 17th, uh, excuse me, it was the 16th uh, rod at an Olympic club. And that was always just the most amazing example people cite to me because <laughs> the 10th green is right next to the 16th tee. And the USGA spends a lot of money to get these big white tee signs and Mike has different ones made up with different yardages. I don't know how he's going to do it at Chambers, but he has them all made up for all these options. And they put that big white sign where the tee is going to be that day. And both Jim Furyk and Fluff had the ability to look at that, and they had then had an hour and a half to ponder <laughs> how to adjust to that tee. Now, they, may have, they obviously didn't notice it. So let's say even though they didn't notice it, they still, as, an, as one of the world's great golfers and one of the great caddies of all time, should be able to adapt to that moment. And they act like that was like Mike Davis had, had erected a, a netting in front of the tee and, and some sort of freakish thing. All he did was ask them to think about playing a little different shot. And so we see these guys taken out of their element. We see them asked to make decisions under pressure, and that's why it's interesting. Wasn't the 14th hole at Torrey Pines, though, possibly the most interesting hole in U.S. Open history over the course uh, of the day to watch <laughs> that? I thought it was I thought so. I sat there all day, and Rocco hit the most beautiful shot in there, and that gets forgotten. You know, he came up there, and he had no problem adapting. I watched guys throw little hissy fits, and, and he came up there and hit this beautiful draw right into the opening of the green, made his birdie, and, and, it, and that's part of the exam is, is having to think on the fly and having to shape a, a shot, and 
I, I just think it's fascinating, but I, I'm, I, I'm sensing more and more that, that, uh, it's still a, it's still a tough sell for Mike Davis. And, and part of it may be some of the comments he's made. And part of it may just be the idea that it's a person doing it and, and not mother nature that's forcing players to, to make changes. As a spectator, can we have an open mic on all of these tees that are going to move and be flexible? Because to listen to the conversations would be fantastic. I reckon Wood spent five minutes on that tee on the 14th on Sunday, didn't he? Trying to decide he did. three wood was he too did. much, five wood wasn't enough. Did he lay it up with a five iron? It would have been fascinating to hear those conversations, what golfers really want. Jay, all this freeform stuff, where does this come from? Where did you, where, where do you take your sort of influences from, to ask a sort of a cliched question? You said you were 25 and your idea was this to be a match play only golf. This is radical stuff uh, in what we see as modern golf. Where do these, where do these fringe ideas come from? Well, again, I think you touched on the fact, you know, being 25, uh, youthful naivete, uh, uh, you don't know, you don't know any better that, uh, that there is a box that you need to fit into type of thing, but <laughs> Uh, you know, it's certainly, you know, just seeing different golf courses around the world, seeing images of places, you know, you think about, um, you know, tees, you look at a place like St. Andrews, if they didn't put the blocks out there, uh, you know, it'd be hard to, and if you're just walking around, it'd be hard to distinguish where a tee was and where it wasn't. So much of it just has to do with the height of cut, as long as the, the tee is, uh, the same height of cut as the surrounds. But, you know, here in the United States, it seems like the, you know the tees are always tight, and then you they're just surrounded by rough, and therefore they just stick out like a sore thumb. But I, I think you know the stuff that you touched on, uh, upon earlier about having the players think. Uh, you know, week in and week out on the PGA Tour, you know you could set up uh, Iron Byron, and and he could probably do pretty well. One of our goals all along at Chambers Bay was to really make people think and have what happened to the ball once it hit the ground really matter uh that this wouldn't just be target golf that the uh the contours and the undulations particularly in and around the green complexes uh were something that needed to be studied and that they were there to be used uh as a helper and would also serve as a defense depending on how you, how you played it and where you were playing from and how much thought you gave to where you hit it off the tee and all those other sorts of issues that we talk about the width in a golf course gives you is those options for strategy isn't it that you if you, you can hit it as far left as you like but when you get there you might wish you'd hit it 30 yards to the right because of what you've got left jay you were when you were talking there it sort of reminded me about the idea of walking off one green and picking where to tee off next it might have been clayton that's how kids would play golf wouldn't it if you just gave them sticks and balls and a piece of ground that's how they would play golf. i won this hole so i reckon we'll hit from here over to that spot there there's a beautiful freedom to that isn't there that we don't sort of have with fairly controlled professional golf in particular very much so and and i i think the fact that you touched upon with just a moment ago is key too uh it, it's it's great to have all those ideas but you have to have enough room in order to be able to to pull them off and to to build in uh the strategy where it, it makes a difference uh, if you're on the left edge of the fairway or the right edge of the fairway with is with is very important and and uh, and being able to provide enough room around green complexes uh i, I think is important as well so uh, you're touching on all the right points. Mm. Clates, talk a bit about width. I always love to hear you talk about this because people will argue that golf should be a game of almost crime and punishment, that if you don't hit the ball in the right spot, there must be a punishment. And width on a golf course doesn't fit into those boxes as, as Jay likes. Talk about the importance of width, width and why the better player will always 
or generally uh, come out on top on a golf course that is wide and offers strategy? Well, a couple of things. I saw, Jay, that interview on Golf Club Atlas you did with Ran. You were talking about golf being trying to make it a test of thought as well as a test of execution. So golf on the PGA Tour, I'm watching Memphis right now on the TV with the sound gun. It's just pure test of execution. You hit hit the ball where they tell you to hit it. And that's the, you know, the the US Open at Merriam was the epitome of that where you have to hit the ball exactly where they tell you. There's there's no thought about where you're going to go. You, you hit it where they tell you, which is fine. I think it's dull, but it's fine. But you go to St. Andrews, which is, I think, the, the greatest place in the world, and apart from asking you to hit it over the burn at the first hole, they don't tell you how to play any shot. You have to work out every single shot, where to, what, how to play it, where to play it, up in the air, along the ground. You, you can play wherever you want from the tee. You can play it on the other fairway. You can do, So there's... You, it's the ultimate test of thought. You, you can do, go wherever you want. And, and we've gotten so far away from that because I think it's an American concept of it's fairness and everybody's got to be punished the same. Everyone's got to be rewarded the same. You know, and, and golf pros are the worst because they're the ones who think that ultimately golf is just a pure test of execution, the one in which the best shot should win, where, well, St. Andrews, it was the one who thought about it and then hit the best shots who won. Shaq, Clates has tarred your entire nation there with the blame for that, <laughs> whether that's a fair criticism or not. Oh, sure it is. Just about that idea of, you know, that it's just a test of execution. Hit it between the goalposts. It, people are used to it now, aren't they? And it's very hard to get people to consider that what we're going to see at Chambers Bay is more interesting, perhaps. Oh, it's 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 been our fight for some time, and, and it's uh, Mackenzie sensed it coming when he wrote about the card and pencil spirit and Max Baer did the same thing. They they saw it uh, developing at their time. I mean, if they saw now what what goes on with with Ruff and all that, of course they'd be uh, horrified. And uh, so I yeah I am curious. I I uh, in terms of the width of Chambers though, Jay, uh, I've seen a little narrowing, and you can see it in in the the photos or the flyovers. Uh, is there any that you feel like has been detrimental to some of the the strategy that you you guys put into the golf course? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, you know when we talked about when the golf course opened, it was always um, you know we, we mentioned the fact that we had uh, talked with Pierce County about the idea of hosting major championships and the fact that uh, you know the U.S. Open could be a, a potential target and we were um, active. We invited the USJ to come out during construction and tour around and share with us any, um, you know, thoughts they might have on, on, you know, how a gallery would get around or course setup, things like that. So um, we, we created the golf course. It was very wide. When the golf course opened in 2007, there was no rough. Um, you know that uh, the the tees flowed right into the fairways, and the fairways were very wide. In fact, uh, you know many of the fairways would bleed together: one and eighteen, two and sixteen, five, six, and seven. They would all bleed together, um, and then outside of that would be the the thin and wispy grasses. Uh, for the U.S. Open, uh, there has been some traditional rough added. I've been watching the photos over the last couple of weeks, uh, and with the uh, the great weather that's taken place up there, those those areas have kind of gone off color, and the seed heads have have uh, come up. So they'll look uh, a lot more like like the outer rough as opposed to kind of just the uh, 
traditional semi-rough, if you will. There's a few spots where um, it could impact the strategy. Probably the, 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 the number one spot is, is number seven. Uh, seven is a long par four, uh, dogleg right up the hill. It's a cape hole, huge waste area on the right that the players will have to try and pick a line uh, to carry. And the fairway itself is kind of a hogback. And so, uh, you know, the real test off the tee is can you pick the appropriate line and without going over the hogback? And, uh, you know, without any rough and super firm and fast conditions, you might you go over that hogback and the ball might roll another 60 yards, uh, you know, kind of back down to the left and away from the green you would still end up on fairway and you'd be 230 or 240 yards away. And my take there would be that people uh, off of fairway would be compelled to play aggressively. Uh, now that the rough has been brought in on the left side there, uh, that same shot will only be 170 yards away from the green, but you'll be in, in, uh, in rough. And we'll, we'll see if they play aggressively. If they still play aggressively out of that rough, then, then it really won't have had a huge impact on the, on the strategy. If they all end up hitting sand wedges and, and playing very, very conservatively, then I would, um, you know, that would be the only way that the, the addition of some rough has kind of impacted strategy, if you will. Mm. And we're talking. We're not talking about traditional inland U.S. Open rough, right? This is it's just fe- it's fescue that's just longer. Well, it's it's interesting, uh, Jeff, in that uh, you know these were areas of fairway, and eventually ah. they just let them they just let them grow. Yeah. So they do have the thickness underneath. Mm, now, yeah. what's what's happened is that they have browned out and the seed head has popped. So from a distance, oh, they will certainly look like the outer rough. And I haven't been up there for uh, three or four weeks, but I'll be very curious to see how the warm temperatures and the lack of water, if, if they are more manageable. Uh, a month ago at Media Day, uh, it, was, it was some thick stuff. Mm, yeah, this, this happens a lot. Clayton knows about this. Uh, where where when when fairways are brought in, it doesn't even matter what kind of grass. Uh, sometimes that that initial ten feet is just is it's because it's it used to be treated as fairway, and it's just it's just a denser, healthier grass, and it's it's uh, much more penal than the stuff another fifteen yards off the fairway. So the, I hope the that's not the to, case. The the places to watch for it uh, at Chambers will be number two, which is a short okay. par four. Uh, right. and, and so therefore I think the thought was that, you know, we had a 60 yard wide fairway and it's now, you know, maybe 30, uh, but there's a crown in that fairway as well. So, uh, that'll be an area you'll see plenty of people probably in the right rough and it'll be, uh, you know, they'll be hitting a, a wedge or a nine iron or an eight iron. So, um, it could be interesting Two two is probably the, the most prominent spot where, uh, the rough will play a part and perhaps the left side of six. Hmm. Jay, while you were talking there, it sort of struck me. Obviously, you know the course <clears> intimately. You were there right from the get-go. And the way you planned out the roughs and how they – I think I remember reading you, you planted very thinly so that they would slowly over time develop quite naturally to be sort of quite fair. You could hit your ball in there. You had a 50-50 chance of – we'd always find it, but being able to hit a good shot. Having been involved in that process over all of those years and right from the very beginning, when you watch the USGA set up the course, not to make criticisms or whatever, but is that a difficult thing to do to watch them do this to your course, so to speak? 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think anybody who's creative and pours their heart and soul into something wants to be a part of, of what's going on. Me personally, you know, I was, um, you know, I, I'm no longer with Jones. I started my own firm in 2012. So for me personally, the hardest part is just not being able to be a part of any refinement. You know, they've refined the seventh green and the 13th green. And those would be things that I'd you know, I can understand their reasoning. They talked about, you know, charting the shots at the amateur and, and some of the goals. And I think the refinements have probably met their goals. But I, you know, for me personally, I would have loved to have been involved in that to try and help make sure that everything comes out, you know, consistent with, with kind of the original. So it's a challenge. But, you know, we knew from the start that one of the goals was the the U.S. Open, and that we built in a ton of flexibility on purpose. You know, not only did we think that was uh, a good thing just from the overall standpoint of golf design, but that it would be great for the USGA to provide them with the flexibility to set up the golf course that they w- the way that they want and the way that they believe will define the cha- the best champion. I think Mike and his team have done a great job. I, everything I've seen. You know, I think I think the golf course is going to uh, challenge every aspect of their game. Uh, I think uh, I'm sure that they'll set it up in, in a very interesting and fun and uh, uh, a fair manner, and that you'll have a, a, a worthy champion. It takes a bit of bravery, doesn't it, Jeff? I've got another question for you in a minute, Jeff. But um, Jay, but Jeff, Mike Davis has to be a bit brave, doesn't he? There's some bravery. He'll get. He, he's been hammered every year that he's set up the U.S. Open course. It's going to be your feel, particularly this year, you would imagine, wouldn't you? Well, there's a difference between, yeah, well, he has to be, I, I don't know if brave is the word, but but he has to be um, uh, sure of what he what his vision is. It's just it's, I, where he's gone wrong with players in, in the last couple of years is that he's been a little too sure and his his response when they've pushed back a little uh, has not pleased them. Obviously, the main one that that comes to mind is the the par three at Marion, the third hole, where he kind of forced them to hit a driver the last day, and it was it was it's just not a hole that 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 was really a good fit, and that really left players with a bad taste in their mouth. So he's got, and I think he's learned from the little little brouhaha that that erupted from from saying that. You need to get there early to scout it out, and um, I think he he he's learned the feedback on that. Suggested that he needed to clarify those remarks a little, and I think he did. I don't know how many of the players saw it, but uh, they definitely have. There's a tension there, and and but I hope he he sticks to his game plan, and um, I, you know it's just a little bit better about anticipating how to deal with certain weather with with some of the ideas he has for the golf course because I think ultimately that's kind of what was part of the problem at Marion was he was he didn't um, anticipate some wind and different things and obviously you can't anticipate everything but uh, when you push it with the setup you better be ready for for certain elements to come into play and and I think that's where you, it's going to be so interesting to watch that this year because the elements are more in play and he's got a lot of duties, and this is going to be the one that shows is he is he putting the the full time job in on setup that that it requires. Just on a real tangent here, Jeff. Did you? I found it interesting. I think I mentioned this right at the start when we talked about uneven tees. At the same time, he made those comments about you know you yeah. want to just come here for two days. He mentioned this idea of perhaps having some uneven lines. The players seemed to take offence at the notion that he was suggesting they weren't good enough to just turn up 
play two practice rounds and win. Nobody seemed to comment on the fact that he was suggesting there might be a oh. tee shots where the ball was above all oh, no. your feet. Oh, no, they were not. That that actually was the thing that bothered him just as much as anything else. And, and that was probably the one where he should just not have mentioned no, it, I think, right. because Jay can probably – in fact, I, I'd really like to hear Jay take us through this because Gil – uh, Hans has been there for for he's going to be working for Fox and he said the the, the that that T controversy was just absurd and the, the 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 slope that Mike is talking about is 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 probably indecipherable to most of these guys. Um, uh, Jay, where are you on that notion of the the slanted uneven lies on the T's thing and and can, maybe you can shed some light on what that was all about. Sure. Uh, so, first of all, when we talk about flat tees, uh, yeah. more often than not, <laughs> t- more often than not, tees are are even even quote flat tees are created with a one percent pitch to them for for drainage purposes. So, uh, you know, what what's really noticeable at Chambers Bay is that you know if you look at uh, past open venues, we'll take Marion for example, you would have a, a, a tee box, I, I believe most of them there were probably rectangular, they were surrounded by rough, and they were all essentially flat. At Chambers Bay, it's going to be one big field of fairway cut grass in terms of the height. So that, that field is going to be 150 yards long, it might be you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 feet wide, and it'll it'll roll over uneven ground, so there'll be you know two foot rolls here and there, and then hidden within there are these quote flat spots. Now those flat spots are still one percent; they were all graded out properly. But the beauty at Chambers Bay is that should they choose to, uh, they could put the blocks in such a manner where, let's say the blocks are are twenty five feet apart from each other. 20 or, or 18 of those feet could be on the flat ground. They could be level. So it could be just like they were playing at Marion or right. anywhere else. Right. And then the, the far right side could have some right to left slope. So if you take hole 14, for example, is a long par four, dog leg left. It's another cape hole with a big uh, tee shot over a waste area. If they chose to, a player, a right-handed player could go and use – you know, if they put the blocks in such a manner, they could choose to find a little bit of a right-to-left slope to help promote hitting a draw, and and uh, and that might be the desired shot on that hole. So, again, uh, the concept came about from the idea of playing the course as match play, where you just go pick the spot that's best for yeah. you. But in in theory, Mike Davis and his team could could choose to try and allow the players to make use of that if they want to. Mm, that's yeah. That's fantastic. I can't wait yeah. to watch if this actually happens. Clates, as a player, would you have liked that? Well, I, 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 someone wrote about it. Maybe Doke wrote about it somewhere. But but the diligent player can use a slope on a tee to help their shot. You know, the, the, the first tee at Port Mark used to be pitched quite a way up. It was a weird yeah. tee. Where you always felt like we hitting the ball straight up into the air. But you know, if you occasionally get on a tee where you're going into the wind, you can find a little down slope or you can use the side slopes to help the shot you want to hit. It's a great way to help the player actually yeah. hit, the, hit the show he's trying to hit. Mm. You, know, you, you tip a tee a little bit le- sort of left to right. It, it, it can help someone who, who sees that, that that section where he can get his feet above the ball to hit a little fade off the tee. Or, so, so it's something that players can really use to their advantage if they're thinking about it, which again Please goes back to the, 
you know, it becomes a test of thought, not just a, text, a, a test of execution. Yeah. Clates, did you ever hear of, uh, about Marion's Tees? You know, when, when Gil worked there originally, and, and he's now back there working, yeah. which is an interesting thing, but he, and, he had Bill Kittleman as his assistant, the longtime pro. And one of the things Bill wanted to do when they rebuilt Tees was to maintain the unevenness of them because there were a lot of them were, were, were not in any way flat, and they had shapes that would allow somebody, if it was, say, the, I don't know, the 15th hole, where you really want to hit a cut, or the 14th yeah. where you want to hit a draw, there were parts of the tees where you could use that to, to help you shape the shot, and Bill was insistent on trying to keep that. And, of course, this was at, this was probably pre-Mike Davis, so people just were horrible. They were aghast at the idea of a building an unlevel tee. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, I think that's what Mike didn't convey about Chambers Bay very well, is that this is something that will be kind of fun for a good shot shaper. Yeah, so yeah, you know, as I said, it's something that players can use their advantage if they're smart. Or complain about it because they're not used to it, Clayton. Either or, whichever, whichever they decide. You can't explain this stuff on Twitter, Shack. That's the problem with the modern world. You can't fit all that explanation to 140 characters. That's uh, uh yeah. Maya never stops Mike from. Exp- I mean, he explains himself very well on most things. This was just one where it was kind of a random comment, and and then you throw in the way today's players react, and and it was uh, it was a bogey. Well, it was you know it was headlines for us, and with so much media about, we all need something to fill the space with. Jay, I want to ask That's, you this question. Uh, this is actually also for you, Shaq, and to you, Clates. But let me ask Jay first. One of the very first player reactions we heard about Chambers Bay was a couple of weeks ago. Ryan Palmer went to check it out. He was asked about it afterwards, and he said, "Well, put your coin in the slot and go for a ride." I think that was a criticism. How do you take that sort of reaction from players? And I'm expecting we, and I assume you would be expecting, we will see some players who really do not like this golf course. Yeah, I think if you talk to anybody who's been involved in the project from the beginning and and uh, understood kind of what what the golf course was intended to be, we we were keenly aware that uh, not every regular golfer, everyday player was going to love it, and that uh, certainly not tour professionals, who uh, you know their livelihood depends on what happens after the ball hits the ground. Uh, so we were we were certainly prepared for a lot of that. Uh, there are some undulations on the golf course. There's some contours on the golf course that uh, you can certainly see. They're very bold. They can have a significant impact uh, on the play. Uh, we think that we've provided enough room and enough options for the smart player to uh, navigate those and to and to use those to their advantage. But uh, we were fully prepared for the criticism. The uh, the thing that I would I would contend would be that you know. If you if you look back at St Andrews or other golf courses, it, it's probably uh, somewhat similar to the reaction people would have the first time that they see something just very very different. This golf course is, is the polar opposite of what they see week in and week out on the PGA Tour. Uh, the highest compliment we could receive would be somebody saying this golf course made me think, but it it, it provided me with a lot of options uh, in in terms of how I can find the right way to get the ball in the hole. Those would be the highest compliments we could receive. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Shaq, your reaction when, you know, players complain about a course you've been involved with and sort of don't get it. How do you sort of respond to that? Or do you just expect it as part of being in the business, I guess? Oh, yeah, it is part of it, but I think you you 
take a look at the comments and then you you sort of analyze what they're saying. And there's definitely a difference between uh, just complaining because they're angry and, and upset and they're uh, and versus angry and upset because they weren't given the chance to, to, to play the course in a certain way. And I, I think that we've gotten better in the last decade or so, both players and those listening to being able to decipher those things. And um, that said, I, I worry, my biggest worry with Chambers is that, uh, that, that with the way the week could go in terms of uh, the, the length of rounds and uh, getting to the course and, and all those things, that, that influences the way people uh, react to it. And so I always never like to see that uh, taint a venue, and I don't. I, I have no idea if that'll be the case, but you, it's always a concern out there that 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 could happen. I mean, look at Marion. I, I still hear people talk about Marion. I'll say, wow, that was a really magical open. Oh well, you should have. You you didn't have to go hit balls over at the other golf course, and uh, it's like, wow, really? So you step back from that week at Marion, and you don't think of Justin Rose's great play at the end and the way it all came together, and and Mickelson having a chance and blowing it, you, you think about where you had to you had to take a shuttle ride to go hit golf balls. So that's that's kind of what you're dealing with sometimes. It's a, it, on a bigger picture scale, Clates, there's a danger, isn't there, that an experiment like Chambers Bay, we saw it a little bit with Pinehurst last year, can go wrong and then this type of golf, to use a very broad term, suddenly gets put in a box of that doesn't work, it's no good. The, is there a danger of that with a course like Chambers Bay, Clates? Well, I guess there is, but there's, all, there's also the, the opportunity that people actually think it's, it turns out well and people think it's great. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Van Bergel evokes the same reaction. People love it or hate it. They think it's crazy or they think it's great. It's, uh, you know, to me, having not seen Chambers Bay, I've only seen it on TV. I remember watching the, the US Amateur there. It's the same sort of stuff. The ball pings all over the place and you've got to judge what it does when it hits the ground. And, you know, it's, it's just different from, from what they're used to. But... Yeah, the only opinion I'm really interested in is what Ogilvy thinks of it because he'll have an intelligent comment to make about it. The rest of them, who cares what Ian Polder thinks about it? I don't don't give a rat's ass what Ian Polder thinks about it because his opinion is not, as far as I can tell, on on golf courses, I'm not that particularly insightful or or interesting. So you look to the players who can make an intelligent comment about the golf course. They can play it and judge it and see the parts that work and perhaps the parts they don't like, but at least they're offering something intelligent. I'm going to watch Twitter and see if Poulter is a listener to the show because if he is no, he, a reaction he, to uh, No, no, no. He just literally right before we started the show, he, he declared that he is uh, he, he will be silent Again. all week uh, about the golf course. Oh, and, uh, right. He didn't oh. say silent in general. Right. He said about the golf course. All right, which brings us to the question that we're going to wrap up on. Of course, it is uh, a US Open. It's a major, so we, not, we want to think about who we might see there at the end. I'm going to start with... You, Jay, is there a sort of player that this golf course suits? For me, I can't help but think somebody like Jordan Spieth or Bubba Watson who talks and thinks in terms of shapes as opposed to numbers and track man figures but seems to think and play almost more childlike that it's the sort of course that might suit them. What's your thoughts on the type of player who might be successful at Chambers Bay? Who are we looking for next week? Well, I think if if you just look at it purely based on the golf course, uh, on paper, it would certainly uh, favor somebody who hits it long. You know, the golf course can be stretched to almost 8,000 yards. I doubt they'll go that that far with it uh, on a daily basis. But you know, there's plenty of length out there, and the golf course is wide enough. So somebody, so somebody who hits it quite long, I think that'll be an advantage. 
And then you hit the nail on the head. This golf course is tailor-made for somebody who has a great imagination, who's very creative, and who likes the idea of shaping shots, right to left, left to right, high shots, low shots. Perhaps more than any golf course on the planet, Chambers Bay has these sideboards or kicker slopes that are there to be to be utilized, you know, and if the flag is in the middle, many times the best way to get to that flag is to play to the right edge of the green and use a slope and let the slope take it there. And a player is going to need to be 200 yards away thinking about, you know, where do I land it and do I use that slope and do I use that slope by hitting a cut into it or do I hit a draw into it? Do I try to play to the toe of that slope or do I try and ride it up towards the top of that slope? So somebody uh, somebody who's very long, creative, and shape shots. On paper, that sounds like a couple of lefties to me. Uh, the, 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 hard, the hard part with that is that this is a U.S. Open and uh, the 72 holes of stroke play uh, and the toughest, you know, traditionally the toughest setup around, uh, on paper, that always uh, – that may not suit those two, so I don't know. It, Jay is. Uh, it, there have been people who view it as a, a, a right to left favoring golf course. Is that a fair criticism, or not criticism, but observation? I, or do you I think it's not, more balanced? I, I I find it to be quite balanced because uh, you know again, even if uh, even if there's more holes that go right to left, and I don't really think that there are. Um, again, it's really all about these sideboards, kicker slopes, and undulations to utilize. And invariably, depending on where you are, which edge of the fairway you're in, you might be choosing to hit a draw or hit a cut into those. Uh, so I'm, I, I don't necessarily see that. I think you're going to need to play all the shots, high, low, left to right, right to left. Shaq, Mickelson's best chance. Is this course right up his alley? Who are we, who are we looking for? Now, I did a uh, handicapping for GolfDigest.com that went live today, actually. And uh, so I, I spent a little time last week actually looking at this because it's such a hard tournament to handicap. And I, if Mickelson sounded at Mirfield Village like he sort of liked the course, he's talking himself into it. But with him, that's what it all comes down to. He's got the game. It's whether he can convince himself to like it enough, I, I feel. And... And I think that he does because of winning at Muirfield. He's just got so much confidence knowing that uh, any kind of links style conditions and weather rule out a lot of people quickly. And I think that's what will get him his juices flowing uh, when he gets there. That said, I know Spieth played a, one horrible round in the U.S. Amateur, but I think it was the day that this, the course kind of got away from him. I, I just don't see how he's not anything but... Uh, the overwhelming favorite with his caddy, knowing the course so well, uh, being a local and having caddy there, he's bring he's every week he's there. I, I just made him the overwhelming favorite. Uh, uh, he can adapt the whole thing. Patrick Reed's somebody to watch out for. He played well there in the amateur. He loves uh, uh, kind of defying the odds, and and he apparently loves the golf course. Bubba's just a who knows uh, kind of guy. <laughs> happened, yep. It should be a good week for Justin Rose. Yeah, they're, they're they're you know again has the power. I, I I'm gonna be, and I think Clates I'm sure would probably agree. I think the guy that's gonna be really fun to see there is Adam Scott because Stevie's gonna be back on the bag and. 
Um, and I, 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 he's got the power. He likes that kind of golf. He, I saw an interview with him uh, this week, and he sounded like he really liked the place. Uh, but it comes down to putting usually with him. Clayton's 15th major for Stevie, do you think? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. How about Stevie coming out of retirement? Well, well, it's interesting. Uh, in fact, it was interesting. I, was, I spoke to him the other day. Um, yeah. Oh, was, do tell. Yeah, no, no, he didn't mention it. It was, it was he's, he's, he's doing something else. But no, it, it was interesting. He didn't mention it. But I mean, I, I, mean, I always thought the guy Adam should have hired was Jeff's old caddy, Alistair Matheson, who yeah. picked up Soren Kelson's bag three weeks ago and fourth the first week, fourth the second week out of Wentworth and won the Irish Open. So Squirrel was, I, I always thought was the perfect fit with, you know, he'd spent 10 years with Ogilvy. He's a perfect personality, such a cool guy. I was amazed he didn't even give him a shot. So, um, I mean, Steve's only coming out for three weeks, so clearly it's a it's a finger in the dike thing for Adam. But um, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I I think Ogilvy might play well. He's played decently the last few weeks, and I he's played a lot of golf at Bamboo, which looks to me like you know there are lots of sideboards there where you're always kicking the ball in from the side and. He's got the imagination to play a course like that, and I and I think he'll like it. So, you know, he hasn't had his best few years, but he's he's the sort of guy who could pop up there and do all right. I think it's almost the artist versus the engineers in a way, isn't it, Clay? The engineers will hate a golf course like this because there's just no predictability, whereas the artist will see all of the fun and the enjoyment. And the, a man who's enjoying his golf tends to play better, don't they? Uh, there's an element well, of that. Well, you just have to manage the bad bounces. Yeah. You know, there, there are always going to be bounces that. On courses like that, where, where you've got to mentally deal with the fact that some of them aren't going to go your way, but it's, that's why it's the most interesting form of golf because it's the whole challenge of golf is dealing with its unfairness. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, Jay, I think you were, were you about to say something there. I jumped in. And... No, I, I just love the discussion about you know who and who and why, and you know I would be fascinated to hear what you know Jeff Ogilvy has to say about the golf course. Uh, you know I uh, respect his opinion uh, very much and, and whatnot, but yeah, I think uh, lots of different things to consider as to as to what will be the the key factor in terms of defining a champion. Of course, it's a bit like the Masters, isn't it, Jay? On paper, it's the easiest tournament to win, except that come Sunday afternoon, it's the Masters. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's difficult about it. You take out all the course, everything else. It's the pressure of the US Open and the everything that comes with that as you come down the last nine holes on Sunday. Jay, it has been fantastic to have you aboard. I really enjoyed chatting to you, and I can't thank you enough for taking some time to chat with us today. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. No, I'm looking forward to seeing how, quote-unquote, your course stands up, as I'm sure you are, next week to an onslaught from the best players in the world. Jeff, are you going? I assume you're going to Chambers Bay, are you, Jeff? I am. I finally get to see the golf course this Sunday. I'm going to fly up uh, in the morning, and I'm going to go walk it in the afternoon. It's probably the last chance I'll actually be able to walk it uh, without uh, walking it from the sides and <laughs> wherever they put us. Well, fantastic. Looking forward to getting your thoughts after seeing it first. Yeah, I can't wait. It looks fabulous on those flyovers. And, Clates, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it, and we'll look forward to hearing whether you've heard back yep. from Jeff after the event and his thoughts on the tournament. We might even try to get him on the show again. It's been a while since we spoke yeah. to you, but uh, good to have you on today. Looking forward to your thoughts next time. Uh, thank you, Rod. Yeah, it'll be fun watching it. I look forward to it. Yeah, me too. I haven't looked forward to a US Open this much. I can't remember the last time, Clates. So US Open, you normally get ready for the grind well, as a spectator, don't you? <laughs> this one is... No, I think we look forward to Pinehurst last year equally as much. That was a, that was a great yeah. tournament to watch.
And that wraps it up for episode 57 of State of the Game. Do hope you've enjoyed it. We look forward to your company again when we come back next time on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.